If you have your Bible today, I'd like you to turn with me to the first book in the Bible. We'll be in Genesis chapter 32 today, and we're going to begin reading in verse 24. Genesis chapter 32 and verse 24, and today we're going to look at one of the strangest encounters in the Bible. We're going to look at the time that Jacob wrestled with God. And I, it's, it's a very famous account, encounter. If you uh, have been in church for a while, or maybe if you remember your days of Sunday school, you might remember this time uh, in Jacob's history whenever he wrestled with God. And it's just really strange. Yeah, I mean, there are so many details about it that they kind of make you scratch your head when you, uh, when you start looking at it and thinking about it. And I say it's strange because... It kind of comes out of the blue. There doesn't seem to be any kind of moral or spiritual truth directly associated with it. The Bible doesn't say, this is what happened and here's the lesson you need to learn from it. Uh, on one hand, it seems like Jacob's fighting with God and that's a bad thing. And then it, it tells us that, that he wins. And then it says that he won't let go of the man and, and he tells him he won't let go unless he gets blessed. And then he gets the blessing and it seems like... Here's a man, it's on the surface, it seems like he's fighting with God, then making a demand of God, and then getting his way, and it just is very, very strange. And the reason we're looking at this is because our, uh, our series that we've been doing on uh, different questions that we have about the scriptures and things, there's a question that was submitted that basically said, um, I've heard that uh, when Jacob wrestled with God, he was actually wrestling with Jesus. Is that true? And so we're going to uh, gonna look at that. Today, Now, this touches on a pretty big topic of appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, theologians have to have big words, and theologians call those Christophanies. Now, we're not gonna, I'm not going to use the word Christophany all the time. I just want you to at least hear the word, and so you know what it is. But those are talking about appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament. And as I tried to figure out how to approach this question, my first thought was to do kind of a survey, if you will, of these these appearances of Jesus before Bethlehem. <coughs> Excuse me. But there are a whole bunch of them, and I'm not sure exactly how I would approach it. And on top of that, this account has so many uh, oddities that I suspect, and I suspect most of us are adequately confused on, uh, on those things, that I fear we probably need to spend most of our time looking at it anyhow. And so uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this account in Scripture, see what we can learn from uh, the things that the, the Bible tells us, and in the process, hopefully answer the question that's been asked, did Jacob wrestle with Jesus? Now, I, I mentioned this before, but uh, it was common several years ago for, um, for authors and, 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 and preachers and stuff like that to give sermons and, and books and articles more than one title. And so I've kind of given this one two titles, but it's too long to fit up on the screen well or in, especially in your bulletin well. The title that I have is Things You've Always Wondered But Were Afraid to Ask, Did Jacob Wrestle with Jesus or The Blessing of Being Defeated by God? Now that's, that's maybe a, a shorter and, and maybe catchier title, but, you, uh, but we'll just stick with the long one anyhow. So if you found Genesis 32, I'd ask you to stand with me if you're able. We're going to pick up in verse 24 and read to the end of the chapter. It says, Then Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. 
So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask me my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him, just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore to this day the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, I think to properly understand this account, we really need to have kind of a rundown of Jacob's history because that really is an integral part of the, uh, to the solution of this puzzling event. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to remind you of some details of Jacob's life. If, you, if you're not familiar with them, it'll maybe kind of fill you in on some of the details, or if you've forgotten some of them, it'll hopefully remind you of them. And I'm going to uh, mention a few things in passing, but also be referring to uh, earlier in chapter 32. So if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to keep it open to Genesis 32. I'm not going to read those verses. I'm not going to have them up on the screen. But if you want to look at them, just kind of scan down through them as I'm talking about them, I would encourage you to do that because those things are are helpful. The first place for us to start today is with some family history. Jacob had what you call a dysfunctional family. Jacob had a dysfunctional family. Now, don't get me wrong. I think every family has some measure of dysfunction in it. But with Jacob's family, it really took the cake because it was dysfunctional for several generations. And by the time it gets down to Jacob, I mean, there is all kinds of dysfunction in his family, especially between he and his brother Esau. Now, he and his brother Esau were twins, and they didn't get along. Anybody here have siblings you don't get along with? You don't have to raise your hand. That's that's, that's okay. Um, But anyway... Jacob and Esau did not get along, and it didn't start in high school. It didn't start in grade school. It started in the womb. In fact, the Bible tells us that that Rebecca, the mom, she couldn't get pregnant for a long time. Finally, she did, and she was pregnant with the twins, and and they fought each other in the womb. They were struggling together, and some of you are uh, probably think that you have some siblings that, that you came out fighting with them too. I mean, they struggled with each other in the womb, and even even when... Esau came out. He came out first. You remember what Jacob was doing? He had a hold of his heel. And that's how he got the name Jacob because the word Jacob means basically heel holder. It means supplanter. Okay, so, so it has the idea of, of scheming or treachery, this, this word Jacob does. And remember, in, in that time, people were not named this any old thing. It, they, they were named something that, that uh, spoke to their nature. It spoke to their character. And so Jacob, with the name supplanter or schemer that really summed up the way that he lived his life he lived down to his name and he was always tricking people he was always scheming people he was always he he was always working an angle and he always it always seemed like he came out on top and so that is the kind of man that jacob was and and it gets into even more dysfunction because not only did he come out grabbing a hold of esau's heel but within the family there was favoritism with the parents so Isaac was the dad, and he liked Esau better than Jacob. And the reason was because Isaac liked wild game, and Esau was an outdoorsman. He was a hunter, and he was a good one. And so Isaac liked to eat this, this wild game, and Esau would go out, and he would hunt and do all these things. 
and come back, and Esau uh, would, would share the game with, with Isaac, and Isaac enjoyed that. But Jacob wasn't that type of guy. And, and, and you know that there are certain people that have proclivities, you know, to be outdoors, and some people like to stay at home and do those things. Well, Jacob liked to stay home and take care of the animals. And so one day, Esau is, um, or let me back up. Isaac is getting close to being, uh, it, it, let me back up even further. Esau comes in one day, and he's famished. He comes in from the field. He is, he is starving to death, he thinks. And Jacob is there, and he just happens to have some freshly baked bread and some stew. And boy, you know how, how good baked bread smells. And so, so Esau comes up. He's starving. He, he's so hungry. And he says, hey, give me some of that, some of that red stuff. And what does Jacob say? Yeah, you can have some if you sell me your birthright. Now, we talk about a birthright in, in America. We don't know what that is probably, but what a birthright was is the oldest son would get a double portion of the inheritance when dad died. And so what would happen is the reason that he got a double portion is because he was then responsible for the rest of the family. And so he would be responsible to take care of mom after dad died. He would be responsible to take care of the unmarried sisters in the house. And so he got a little bit of extra uh, income, a little bit of extra inheritance as the oldest son. And so Jacob says, I will sell you this, but you got to sell me your birthright. In other words, whenever dad kicks the bucket and he's not too far from it, I'm going to get the double portion instead of you. And so Esau says, well, what good is that going to do to me if, I'm, if I've starved to death? Sure, I'll make that trade. And so he makes the trade and, and, and he gets the food. Then later, Isaac is getting close to death. And as their, as their tradition was, um, the dad would bless the children. And in this case, what, part of what that was is he would, he would uh, make the oldest one the head of the family. And so Rebekah hears that Isaac is sending Esau out to, to get some wild game. He's going to bring it back and, and cook it and bless him. Rebekah, mom, hears about this, and he says, she says, Jacob, we're going to trick dad. He's, he's, getting old, he's old. He can't see very well. We're going to make him think that you're Esau, and you're going to get the blessing. I said, dysfunctional. And so Jacob says, all right. And so they do that, they scheme and they plot and they trick Isaac, he blesses Jacob, and Esau comes in, finds out he doesn't get the blessing, and he's mad. I mean, he is very upset. In fact, the Bible says that he is ready to kill Jacob, and he plans to do so once Isaac has passed away. And so Rebekah finds out that Esau is, is saying he's going to kill Jacob, so she says, Esau, or Jacob, you go away, and once, in a few days, once Esau's anger burnt, uh, dies down a little bit, and he doesn't want to kill you anymore... I'll send word to you. And so Jacob goes off. He ends up, uh, ends up at a, a, a man by the name of Laban's house. He exchanges some work, supposed to be for uh, Laban's daughter's hand in marriage. But Laban tricks the trickster, and he marries off the wrong sister to Jacob. And so Jacob gets mad, and then he works another several years for the other sister's hand in marriage. I mean, all kinds of dysfunction. And so, so all this happens. Then Jacob, people, people in, in Laban's family start disliking Jacob because he's getting prosperous and they feel that he's taken the, the inheritance that they would be getting. And so Jacob gets word of this and he takes the, his, his wives, the two sisters, the kids, all, all their property, all these belongings, all the livestock, and they, they head out. They don't tell Laban they're going. 
And so Laban gets mad. They, he chases them down like they're an enemy. He confronts them. Finally, all that stuff gets sorted out. Laban goes off to, back, to his, back to his home. But God has called Jacob to go back to Canaan. Now, he had, he had told Jacob's grandpa, Abraham, I'm going to give you and your descendants this land. So Jacob is going back to Canaan that God had promised Abraham. The problem is, to get from point A to point B, he has to go through Esau's territory. And so he knows, this is not a surprise to him, he knows that Esau lives over here, and he needs to go through that area to get to where he's going. And so he's traveling with all these people, all these kids, all, these, all this livestock, and he says, I'm going to send word to my brother Esau. Now understand, this is some 20 years later, round about there. And so he sends word to Esau. And remember, Rebekah says, whenever Esau is not mad enough to kill you anymore, I'll let you know. She never let him know. So as far as he knows, for the last 20 years, Esau has been stewing and plotting to kill Jacob. And he's got to go into his area. He sees the problem, right? And so he, he sends word to, to Esau. He says, I'm coming through. The people go, they tell Esau, they come back, they don't tell Esau what he said. All they say is, we saw Esau, and he's coming, and he's leading uh, some 400 men. And so, so you can imagine how Jacob is feeling. He is stressed out. The Bible says he is distressed. Now, he knows that, that God has called him to Canaan. He knows that God has promised to bless him. Even in chapter one, or verse 1 of chapter 32, I had never noticed this until this, uh, this week whenever I was studying this for this message. But verse 1 actually says that, that Jacob meets some angels of God. So here is Jacob. He's got these promises from God. He has angels that have shown up. They, they meet with him. He knows that God is with him, but he's still worried. And he tries to take things into his own hands. Now, I know you've never done that. But I have. And so he sends, he sends messengers to Esau, says, I'm, I'm coming. And here's what he does. He says a little prayer, says, God, please deliver me from Esau's hand. And then he goes back to his old scheming ways. And so what he does is he says, I'm going to hedge my bets. I have all these people traveling with me, all this livestock, so I'm going to divide them up into two groups. So that if Esau attacks one group, I'm only going to lose part of my livestock, part of my wives, part of my kids. The rest of them will hopefully be safe. So he's hedging his bets. He says his little prayer in there, and then he goes back to scheming, and here's what he says. He says, I think it's around verse 20, he says, here's what I'll do. I'm going to try to appease Esau. So I'm going to send him a present. Now, he's not sending him a fruitcake. He's not sending him a gift card. What he does is he's sending him livestock. Now remember, this is agricultural area. This is wealth. And so he says, I'm going to send him sheep. I'm going to send him goats. I'm going to send him camels. I'm going to send him cattle. I'm going to send him donkeys. I'm going to send all this stuff. When he added it all up, he, he decides to send 550 head of livestock to Esau. That's substantial. And so what he does, and remember, he's a schemer. So he doesn't say, I'm going to send it all in one big mass. 
Well, he says, I'm going to send it in droves. So I'm going to send a, a group of, of my servants with all the, the, all the camels, for instance. And then I'm, I'm going to wait for them for, to be gone for a bit. Then I'm going to send all the sheep. I'm going to send all the goats. And there's going to be a space in there. And the reason is, when Esau sees all the camels, for instance, he says, who do these belong to? They say, it belongs to your servant, Jacob. And he sends them to his lord, Esau. He's buttering him up. And then there's going to be a, a gap in there. And then all of a sudden there's uh, you know, a couple hundred more and a couple hundred more. And so it's going to make a bigger impact the way they send it. He's clever, right? And so he's, he's working the system. He's trying to game Esau. And so his whole goal in verse 20 is to appease Esau. So he sends all this up ahead, gets his family across the river, and finally he's alone. He's left alone, just him, in the camp. And you, can, you know how it is when you're real busy. You don't, sometimes you don't really have time. You don't feel that you have time to, to stop and consider and think and to pray. Well, Esau, or Jacob, I'm going to get those names right one of these days. Jacob finally gets that time. And no doubt, I believe he's probably praying about this, this event that he's going to, uh, this interaction he's going to have with Esau and so forth. And it's here in verse 24 that we have our event. As I said at the outset, this is an odd event because there's nothing like it recorded elsewhere in Scripture. It just kind of, it just kind of appears out of the blue. The Bible doesn't initially identify who the man is. When we find out in some way that Jacob has been wrestling with God, it's puzzling because then he's grabbed hold of this man and says he won't let go unless he gets blessed. And it seems like he's being defiant, making a demand. And then the Lord does bless him. And, and what do we make of it? What does it teach us? Well, first, we need to understand with whom it is that Jacob is wrestling. Look at verse 24 again. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Now here, the Bible just refers to him as a man. It was someone who had a human form, had the appearance of a man. So who is this? Do we get any, do we get any clues about who it is that wrestled with him? Well, look at verse 28. In verse 28, Jacob identif- um, uh, the, the man identifies... Well, let me back up. What does he say to Jacob? What's your name? Now, do you think he asked that because he's ignorant? No. What he's doing is he's, he's forcing Jacob. Remember, his name means schemer, supplanter, trickster. He says, what's your name? The, Jacob says, I want a blessing. And he says, first, you need, to, you need to fess up to who it is that you really are. What is your name? And he, he admits, Jacob, I'm a trickster. And he says, you ain't going to be anymore. That's the Ozarkian version of it. You're going to have a new name, and it's going to be Israel. Now, in the Bible, there are a few times that people get their names changed, and it's always a significant event. So if you think about Jacob's grandpa, Abraham, what was his name originally? Abram. God gave Abram a new name, Abraham. He gave Jacob's grandma, Sarai, a new name, Sarah. We, we have uh, Jake, uh, we have uh, Abraham and Sarah. We have Jacob getting a new name here in the New Testament. Jesus says, your name is Simon, but you're going to have a new name. It's going to be Peter, which means a rock. This is something that God would do. It was a significant spiritual event. 
Next, we see that he blessed Jacob. Third, in verse 30, Jacob identifies him as God. He named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Fourth, this man identified himself as God. He says, you've striven with man and with God. So let's put this all together. We have one who does the things that God does. He's identified as God, and he is in the form of, of a man. Who does that sound like to you? Sounds like Jesus to me, right? Because the Bible says that no one has, has seen God, has seen the Father at any time. But, but we know that, that, like in the Incarnation, when Jesus was born, he was God in human flesh. So we, when you look at Jesus, you see God. But you can't see God in all of his glory and live. Now, in the Old Testament, we have several appearances of a, a mysterious character that the Bible calls the angel of the Lord. And there's, there's very good biblical, logical, sound reason to believe that that is actually a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Before he was born in Bethlehem, he showed up in the Old Testament. Because the word angel simply means messenger. So, that still doesn't answer the question of why. I think, I think it's, it's reasonably sure that this is Jesus that Jacob wrestled with. But why? Why did they have a wrestling match? I mean, did Jesus, was he just like, did he just like to wrestle or what? Well, no, there's more to it than that. Because the Bible, the Bible tells us that Jacob is never the same. It doesn't tell us in, in plain terms like that. But it, it obviously teaches Jacob something. And the first thing that I want you to see is that it was God that in, initiated this encounter. God initiated the encounter. Look at verse 24. It says that Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with Jacob. Now understand, that's not to say that Jacob just lay there and let the man put him in a full Nelson or something like that. But what it's saying is, the man was the one that initiated the contact. It wasn't as if Jacob is there alone. Here comes a man walking along and Jacob says, you want to wrestle? That's not what happens. This man initiates the contact with Jacob. It's not like Jacob was wrestling with the man because he wanted to get something from him, a blessing for instance, but rather the man initiated the contact because he wanted to get something from Jacob. Namely, he wanted to remove something from his life. Now, this is just an aside, but uh, this, to me, is an amazing count because of the amount of time that it took. Because Jacob, we don't know what time it was. He got all the family across and got back to the camp and when all this started happening. Sometime during the night, but the Bible says that it went on until when? Morning, daybreak. Now, if you have never grappled with somebody who's actively resisting you, it is exhausting. I mean, it, it, it will wear you. I've seen people come in. They'd be gym rats, you know, big old muscly guys. And they get out there on the mat, wrestle with somebody, and they are winded just in a few minutes. I, some years ago, I think it was even before Jesse was born, I did jiu-jitsu for a summer at a place in Republic. And jiu-jitsu is, is grappling, wrestling with, with one another. And I've been doing it for a while, and so I was several years younger, several pounds lighter, probably even had some hair back then. And I had been going for a while, and one day they said, you know what, you're going to go for 30 minutes straight, no breaks, same partners. I thought I was going to die. 
because after a few minutes of because I mean you're you're going full bore, and after a while your your tank is empty, and so this this happened for hours, and I can't even imagine something like that. And this this just kind of I don't know why I'm telling you all that, but anyway, God is God is trying to extract something from Jacob, okay. So why did it go on so long? Well, I think probably because um, God was letting him do all that he could. Remember, Jacob here is a schemer. He is, he, he is a trickster. He is self-reliant. He thought he could do it all. If, if he could just manipulate the situation, he could get it worked out for his own good. But this encounter showed him, and more importantly caused him to feel and to recognize his need to depend on God, because look at verse 25 again. They wrestled for hours, and the man reached out and touched him and partially disabled him. He, he, he reached out and touched his hip. Now, I can imagine having been through this process of grappling for 30 minutes, and by the end of it, it's more just like, okay, just do what you want to me. I don't care. I'll just tap. You can just look at me and I'll tap. I'll, I'll give up. But we couldn't do it. And I can imagine Jacob, after, you know, three or four or five hours, he's probably thinking, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I'm home my own for all these hours. And this man takes it from this, this schemer that thinks he can do it all and with a single touch makes it where he can't even stand on his own. He, he touches him, and he immediately loses all strength, loses all power. What that shows Jacob is, this guy with a single touch could have ended this at any point. And if he didn't, there's a reason why. And what was the reason? Again, I believe he was bringing Jacob to the end of himself. He'd done all that he could do. He had worked all that he could. He had used all of his ingenuity, all of his strength, all of his power. And with a single touch, he's disabled. Now he can't even stand on his own two feet without support. So what does he do? Well, look at look what the Bible says. He says in verse 25, he dislocated his, his leg, his, his thigh, while I wrestled with him. Can't even stand on his own. Then verse 26. Then he said, let me go. And Jacob grabbed hold of him. And Jacob says, I won't let you go unless you bless me. He can't even stand on his own, so all he can do is cling to the man. But you say, but pastor, I, I think he might be wrong because the Bible says he grabbed hold of him. He demanded a blessing. I don't understand how he could demand a blessing and then get it. Well, I think we might be tempted to think that he's speaking with a tone of defiance. He demanded a blessing. You bless me now, or I'm not letting you go. But I just want you to consider, what if instead of defiance, it was a request of dependence? What if instead of demanding a blessing, he was begging for a blessing? What if Jacob realizes that he's done all that he can do, and now... He can't even stand on his own two feet without assistance. And as he realizes there's this limit to what he can do, he's really not self-sufficient. He really needs help beyond himself with somebody who's mightier than he. 
And in this moment of desperation, he cries out to this one who's mighty and says, bless me, please. It's a plea. Well, if you consider that, that gives it a whole other flavor, doesn't it? Instead of an act of defiance, it's a, it's a, a, a plea of dependence. And that actually would make sense to why he got the blessing, right? Because if we demand that God bless us, yeah. But when we earnestly plea, those are the types of requests that God hears. You say, now, Pastor, that sounds pretty good. But the Bible doesn't say that. We're not going to turn to it because it's in the book of Hosea. You probably have to turn to the table of contents to find Hosea. But I'll give you the reference, and you look it up later if you want. I'll, I'll read it to you. In, in Hosea chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, it's speaking of this. Speaking of Jacob, and here's what it says. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. And in his maturity, he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethlehem there. He spoke to us. See, this was not a defiant demand, but rather a desperate plea for help. He sought it with tears. That's a, that's, that's a horse of a different color, isn't it? He had been brought to the point where he could no longer wrestle, but he had to cast himself entirely on the Lord. All this scheming, all this plotting, all this work that he thought he could do, he realized he couldn't do anything without God. So, God says, what's your name? He says, I'm a schemer. He says, it's not anymore. There's a change. Now you're going to be Israel. What's interesting is, there are certain people in the Bible, when they had a name change, Abraham, he was never called Abram after that. So it was Abraham. Look at Peter. Sometimes Jesus called him Peter when he was acting like a rock, but sometimes he called him Simon when he was acting less than his name should, be, should have been. Same thing with, with Jacob and Israel. Sometimes he's called Jacob, sometimes he's called Israel. Sometimes that old way of living came back out. Now the Bible says that as he went away, he halted on his thigh. That word means he limped. We don't know how long that limp lasted. I was reading one of the commentaries, and it said that he thought that this man struck him in the groin, and by daybreak he was, he was up walking fine again. I don't think so. I think that, and, and many uh, biblical scholars believe that he limped the rest of his life. And I tend, to, I tend to lean towards that because I think for the rest of his life, every step he took was a reminder of that night when God showed him, you, this way of living, of scheming and plotting, that's not, that's not going to cut it. That's not, the way, that, that's not the way that you should be living. You can't do it all on your own. And it's, it's in, in this moment when you're weak, that's when you're made strong. And I think that's really a lesson that, that each of us needs to remember. That we're not enough in and of ourselves. Because what many of us try to do is, is we try to work situations. And we try to work angles. And we try to manipulate people and, and responses. 
and we try to pull strings and figure it all out on our own. And like Jacob, after all we can do using all of our ingenuity, all of our craft, we can be brought to a state of absolute dependence on God with just, in, in just a blink of an eye. One phone call can change it all. One doctor's visit, one diagnosis can change it all. One farming accident, one round of layoffs at work. All this stuff that we think that we can do on our own, all this scheming and planning goes right out the window. And all of a sudden we realize, like Jacob did, scheming in the way to go. And sometimes God will use those difficult times in our lives to get something from us. Namely, things like self-reliance and pride. Remember I said that, that Jacob didn't come to this man because he wanted something from him. The man came to Jacob because he wanted to take something from him. Namely, he wanted to extract that pride, that self-reliance, that scheming nature out of him. And we would, we would do well to remember our dependence on God. And many of us have been brought low in life because of grief or bereavement, sickness, infirmity. And in those times, we've learned, we've been reminded that we need Him every hour. How quickly it is that we forget, isn't it? We'll go through those times, we'll be leaning on Him, but after things kind of lighten up, we start to forget. We start to think again that we're self-sufficient, that we can do it on our own. But I recognize today, do you, do you recognize your dependence on Him? Maybe you're like Jacob and you have a family situation that's too big for you. Jacob and Esau, they were estranged. When this deceit happened, now sometimes we say, oh, I could kill him. I could kill her. That wasn't the way, that wasn't the way Esau said it. So when dad's dead, I'm going to kill him. He had every intention of putting Jacob to death. That's dysfunction. And if you would look at that situation, you'd say they could never be around each other again without violence. But the very next chapter, chapter 34, verse 4, or chapter 33, sorry, verse 4, Jacob gets to Esau, and then verse 4 says, Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. He didn't run to him with a knife in his hand. He ran to him and embraced him. That is a change in heart that only God can bring about. And you may have some difficulty in your life. Maybe it's a family situation. Maybe it's a job situation. Maybe it's a health situation. Maybe it's some other thing that, that's not even on my radar. Don't be like Jacob and that you bring it to the Lord and then you go back to your old scheme and ways. It's not plot, pray, plot some more. Bring it to God and leave it. Of course, as always... The altars are open. If you have something on your heart you want to pray about, of course do that. Maybe you want to do it at your seat. That's fine too. But bring those things to God. Or maybe you're here today and, and the Spirit of God is hammering away the truth in your own heart that you're not enough. You're not good enough to get to heaven. All the good stuff that you do is not good enough to put you in the right standing before God. Listen, that's not, 
That's not society putting you down. That's the Spirit of God saying, you're lost. No matter what you do, it's not going to be enough. The only way that you can get to heaven is by putting your faith in Christ. It's not by works that we can do, because our righteous works, the Bible says, are like filthy rags. But when we put our faith in Christ, those sins are forgiven. We're made right with Him. Because it's not what we can do, it's what Christ has already done on the cross. And if you've never trusted in Christ for salvation, do that today. Want you stand with me as musicians come? And as you stand, I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And with nobody looking around, I just wonder, is there some situation you have in your life? Maybe you've not cared to share it with too many people. Maybe, maybe nobody. Family situation, you're estranged from your siblings, your parents, your kids, your grandkids. As you look at it, you say, that is a hopeless situation. They don't want to have anything to do with me. Or maybe the shoe's on the other foot and you don't want to have anything to do with them. God can and does change hearts. Pray to that end. Pray for reconciliation. Or maybe like Jacob, you have this tendency to, to plan and plot and to scheme and take it all Think that you can do it all on your own. You think that you're sufficient to work out situations, but you know you're not. You know that you need some help from one mightier than yourself. Peter says to cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that we know that prayer is not a placebo. It's not that if we do it, things are going to be the way that they are anyway, but we know that you respond to the prayers of your people. And God, I thank you that, that you do change hearts. And God, if there's somebody here who's, who's holding a grudge against somebody, I pray that you would help them to let go of that because that holding on to those things is like a uh, drinking poison and, and hoping they'll hurt the other person. It just eats us up and do anything to the other person. And God, I pray that you would help each of us to realize with Jacob that that we can't do it on our own. Help us to rely on you. If there's somebody, God, who's who even now is, is feeling the tug of the Spirit's conviction, they know that that they're not where they should be. Spiritually they're they're not close to you. They've never been close to you because they've never uh, become one of your children. God, I pray that you would convict their hearts. Help them to put their faith in you.
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What page?